0: Welcome to Changing Reels, a podcast that aims to change the conversation on diversity and representation in cinema one reel at a time. My name is Courtney Small. I write about film for several publications, including ThatShelf.com, where the show is hosted, and Cinema Access, to name a few. I'm also the co-host of the podcast Frameline. Today, I'm joined by film critic and university professor, Dr. Jessica Rogers. Jessica is the co-host of the Real Insight podcast and has written about film for several publications, including Cinema Access and The Matinee, to name a few. Jess, how are you doing today?
1: I'm great. Thanks, Courtney. How are you doing?
0: Uh, Not too bad. I'm actually looking forward to our discussion today. Sometimes we just need some things that make us happy and this is one of those films that
1: exactly makes
0: makes me happy uh, our main film for today is the 2019 romantic comedy always be my maybe directed by nanachka khan best friends from a young age everyone assumed that sasha and marcus would end up together however fate had other plans in store now 15 years later the pair reconnect only discover that despite their lives going in different directions, some sparks never fade. Now, Jess, do you wanna kick us off with a a few thoughts on this film?
1: I'd love to. So this was the second time I'd seen it. I watched it right after it came out because I love Ali Wong. I think her stand-up specials are just amazing on Netflix, both while she was pregnant, which just tickles me, and how she was putting it all together. So I've been really following her and I really wanted to see it for her. And then I'd seen Fresh Off the Boat a couple of times It never made it into my all-the-time rotation, although it might now, now that I have time to go back and watch it. And Randall Park is just awesome. So I was really looking forward to this. And so I watched it a second time to prep for this recording. And I didn't, I thought I had seen it and grasped everything I wanted to know about it. Like, oh, okay, this is just a good rom-com, solid writing There was a lot more to it. Like you start thinking about the idea of what is the title of this? How are they representing different voices in this? Is it just, oh, here's a romantic comedy and we just made everybody Asian and that's how we did this? Or is it a romantic comedy that actually speaks to what it is to be Asian? Or is it a romantic comedy that is less good because it involves increased diversity? Is it too simple or something? And the first time I saw it, I thought it was a little bit of all those things. It was good in good ways. It was different. It didn't blow me away the first time I saw it, but then re-watching it for this, there's a lot more complexity in it than I think I saw the first time. And one of the best things about the best romantic comedies is the rewatchability. It's a genre that I've always loved, and if I can't watch it over and over again, then it's not a great romantic comedy. It's not a great movie. And I was, so I was surprised. I was a little hesitant going into it as much as I liked it the first time. I was like, ah, it's not going to tell me anything new. Maybe I don't need to watch it. I'll just record and go with that. I'm so glad I just watched it again and really got to see what they were trying to do with it, how they were mixing these ideas of her her experience. So it's not even a universally pan-Asian cast. Like she grows up in a Chinese household and he grows up in a Korean household. And they talk about different kinds of Asian food. And it actually comes up more often than I would have expected in the story. And then there's other pieces of it. It's a long-winded way of saying these were my first thoughts seeing it, that I was pleasantly surprised that it was more complex when I saw it again and then the second piece that I want to get your opinion on is the title so the first time I heard it I was like oh that's just kind of interesting instead of always be my baby which is the song that plays over the credits at the end always be my maybe and this idea of if you had a spark with somebody once are they always sort of there on the back burner which is an interesting romantic comedy kind of trope that often you go home to Your high school love, or whatever, and they turn out to be clearly the wrong person for you. I think it happens in the proposal when they go back to Alaska and he meets Ryan Reynolds, sees his girlfriend from high school, and Sandra Bullock gets all intimidated by her. But then it's like, no, she's not who he was meant to be. And that's how romantic comedies kind of work sometimes. But they did a good job sort of turning that around for this. What do you think of the title specifically?
0: The title I found interesting. The first time I watched it, I, some two, I was just like, oh, it's kind of a nice play on the Mariah Carey song, i right. um, Be My Baby. But this is my third time rewatching it for this particular show. And I, I will say that when I first saw the film, I enjoyed it so much that I had mentioned it to my wife. So I think the next day she decided that she was just going to pop it on. And I literally woke up and she had just started. And I said, yep, I'm going to watch that again. <laughs> I'm not a huge romantic comedy fan. I I enjoy the genre. There's a lot about it I want to talk to you with. But in regards to the title, I find it interesting how it's used here because both Marcus and Sasha felt for a long time that something would happen. Mm -hmm. But no one pulled the trigger. So they just assumed it would eventually happen and it never did and even when they reconnect they're constantly swapping back and forth so when she starts to get that little inkling well he's now with another person when he's starting to feel that she finds another person right so it's always that kind of i've never closed that door and i think that's the best way i can can phrase it yeah the people that they interact with aren't necessarily the right ones but i always felt like how marcus and sasha connected remained the same. And even when there was competition, they were a little hostile in their own unique ways, but they always kind of wanted to keep that door open.
1: Yeah, you you put it really well.
0: Yeah, maybe that safety net of having someone kind of be the back burner of, well, if I ever needed someone, this person's there. Maybe that safety net is also what keeps them from going after what they want. So, you know, you may have a crush on someone for years, but you're you're always thinking, well, they'll be there when I need them. So I don't necessarily have to have a sense of urgency that you often need when it's issues of love.
1: Right. And the weird thing you you really hit on it. So they were together would they won't they for a long time, but then they did, right? They hook up right after his mom dies. And they're crazy awkward because they didn't Either they weren't ready to navigate the how do we take this thing that we've been feeling and turn it into a romantic relationship, which I think is one of the things that this movie does particularly well. They didn't know how to do that. And I think the thing they ultimately get to when they're adults 15 years later is there isn't necessarily anything different right? They already had this amazing relationship. And Sasha had a crush on Marcus their whole childhood. He just didn't know. And somehow when he finds out, that sort of changes how he frames their relationship. So they do this, maybe we should get together. But once they do, they're so awkward about it, they don't know what to do with it. And I think they were close enough. They were maybe we could do this. But then they tried and it wasn't easy. And so they just stopped. And I think once they're adults, it's kind of interesting. And that's one of the complexities I kind of liked. It's like now that they're adults, maybe they actually have the wherewithal to figure this out, to go from just being friends, which they were for decades, to romantic partners.
0: The one thing that both of them failed to do was to have just honest conversations. I think yes. they were, they're so used to just kind of being in that rhythm as friends. Right. That even after they have that counter, assuming they both lose their virginity at that point.
1: Oh, true. At the timing, they might have. You're right. They don't go into it deeply.
0: They never talk about But even afterwards, he doesn't ask her, like, is it all right if I put my arm around you? you right. Know, but like they, how do you deal with it? How do we deal with it? So it's like, okay, we, we did the deed. Well, let's get something to eat. But we we now don't know what's the protocol for right. We've we've ventured into uncharted territory and even though we both might have thought about it, we never actually really plotted it out.
1: Right. They plotted up to maybe we could get together Mm -hmm. and never thought about what get together would
0: look like. And I feel for Marcus, throughout most of the film, he struggles to take that next step. I felt like he he needed the go-ahead. He needed someone to give that verbal permission otherwise he would have never made his move. because if you think about it, she's the first one who makes the the initial move right and he's so fearful of change or disrupting anything that's quote-unquote status quo he doesn't want to increase his life at any point whereas Sasha she's very much a go after what you want but hide any type of feelings that make you uncomfortable
1: and I, you just pointing this out makes it clear it's so later when they're all grown up and The feelings are sort of coming back and whatnot. You're right. It's Marcus who initiates in the limo. And then they, that's when they start to get together again and try to figure out how to make it work. And at this point, they've both been in relationships enough clearly that. They, can fig- they know how to take that next step, that it's easier somehow. So maybe the maybe at the beginning is just, we're just not grown up enough to figure out how to do this, which I kind of liked. I liked that balance of it. Not that this was this wonderful romanticized childhood romance. It was just this br- wonderful friendship, which I think what the movie is trying to say is that It's not just love at first sight and that means you get to be happy forever and it works out. It's that you have to understand how to live with somebody, how to be their friend, how to be their partner and keep going, which is really unique in the genre. They don't tend to spend a lot of time trying to help you figure out why people should be friends.
0: I think compared Marcus to Sasha's fiance, Brandon, played wonderfully by... Daniel Day Kim. Daniel Day Kim. And he's very much the type of individual where it's all kind of business and Mm -hmm. he's far more forward than Sasha and he's like you know what I don't think we're quite ready yet let's have a year apart where we could soar well it's a little more and just go eat pray love what have you (laughs) and then come back together and she and does not want to have uncomfortable conversations so her response is yes sure go for even though that's soul crushing to her
1: right and clearly he's just asking to be allowed to sleep with other people
0: yes and and some would argue even more famous and influential people than than she is true because she's made a very good career she's a celebrity she's opening her whole bunch of restaurants and even that's still not good enough she still in many ways has to be submissive to how others treat her.
1: That's one of the things I have, it's one of the few places that I really liked the movie and yet also had problems with it in the sense that it's not yet what I want my dream version of the world to be. Like, I have an, several advanced degrees. I have a PhD. I work in a successful career and that has intimidated people in my past. It inti- oh, I know it intimidates my students, but I'm not trying to date them. Um, well, hopefully not. <laughs> but <laughs>
0: no.
1: but it's, it, it can be intimidating yeah. and it's been intimidating in my dating life in the past. And one of the things that this movie does really well is positions her successfully. She's a successful woman. She does not apologize for her success. She even tries to sort of stay away from her parents who begrudge her some of that success or don't quite know what to do with her success, which is an interesting dichotomy because one of the stereotypes is Asian parents really want their children to be very successful and brag about it and promote it. And that's one of the ideas behind the model minority is that Asian success is just a given and that this has to go on and so it's both interesting that her parents she has problematic relationship with her parents and yet is successful and then it does come up in a good way and a bad way like he resolves himself he figures out at the end that he wants to hold her purse and that little speech at the end on the red carpet where instead of asking if he can be with her he asks if he can hold her purse. Made me so happy, but it always frustrates me when he gets so bent out of shape about her success. But I also think she doesn't handle it well by saying, I hope you'll just come with me. Like that's devaluing his time and energy as well to just hang out with her. But I think the movie gets there. It's sort of an undertone that I, I kind of wish they'd explored more. How do you balance these unequal kinds of professional success and how do you balance the unequal professional ambition because clearly it doesn't work with daniel Day kim like he's even more professionally ambitious than she is and to some extent they temper her ambition in the sense that she's at the beginning trying to create these constant pan-Asian restaurants, like, oh, we'll do these more, there was a trio of words or something, transgressive, trans something, and just pan-Asian, transnational, basically combining all the options to make these Asian restaurants. And at the end, she's built a restaurant in New York that is based on the Korean recipes that Marcus's mother had taught her. And so she isn't apologizing for her success. She isn't diminishing her success. She's changing her goals, which I think is actually an interesting model for relationship success, that she's not changing who she is or what she wants to do with those kinds of things. She's just changing what it looks like to accommodate also having the relationship. So I think it's good. I just wish he hadn't been a douche and gotten really upset with her success and how he dealt with it and being just a what was it regular person? Is that what she calls him? Yeah, On the red carpet and he gets upset.
0: And I, I feel part of that has to do with society and yes. how we treat gender roles because you know you, you made a very good point when you talked about your many accomplishments and how that can still be intimidating when sure. it comes to romantic relations because as much as we have progressed as a society, There are still very much traditional, quote unquote, views on what it means to be a man in this world. And, like, there's still the notion of men being the providers. Right. And I feel that in many ways, romantic comedies tend to perpetuate that. Mm
1: -hmm. They can. And
0: this is what kind of brings me to. The, the Hallmark films, and I would even argue Tyler Perry movies as well. To some extent. Yeah, there's a certain thread that we have been fed for, for years, and I've noticed we get it a lot in the Hallmark movies, of the big city success is seen as evil and intimidating, whereas sometimes it's the small blue-collar success is what you should appreciate. But even then, in that dynamics, the men are still seen as providers in these films the st- sign of status is men of a particular means and marcus is never that you know he he can't even walk into versace and or whatever tom ford tom ford and name drop a celebrity and get a suit because when he sees the price he's like nope None of that. Well, I'm the price
1: to... is twelve thousand. I'm not sure any version of me could do that either. So, oh, I,
0: I, when he went to uh, the, the other store and it was like you know got that two hundred dollar suit, right. and they're like, oh, that's good for you know funerals and whatnot. I'm like, I
1: know. I love that they mocked the suit that they were selling him.
0: <laughs> and I'm thinking that's a great suit. That's a, that's a wonderful deal. That I mean, that's so versatile because <laughs> I know I can't right. do that. But for for a lot of these films, it's the prince charming has always been of an elevated status and if he's not of an elevated status the other partner has to be successful one of them has to be at a really affluent job
1: and usually the end is some version of them equaling out like oh the last couple of minutes you find out she got an amazing job near where he is or he gets this new promotion and now they are closer to equal and thus they can be happy and I like that this movie was a little subversive with that in that his career prospects don't change at all in the movie we don't find out I mean I can't imagine his band is going to be any more successful. Her songs
0: are pretty good though. Come on. They are pretty good. <laughs> I like the songs.
1: But I don't know that it's going to necessarily be more successful. Clearly, he has skills at the business that he and his father own, but I don't know that he's automatically going to be more successful. She tempered her professional ambition, which is different than tempering her professional goals. Like, they didn't go back and just decide to just open a restaurant in. A small town USA like the Hallmark movies would yeah and that would be the end of her professional chef celebrity chef career she's satisfied with just a small restaurant in the Midwest somewhere they didn't do that like she's still opening a restaurant that people really want to go to in Manhattan it's just closer to mirroring her own values which I think is a nice change and it doesn't necessarily bring them back to equal financial or professional status and that's okay he clearly is okay with that by the end he's decided that there's more important things than this societal view of masculinity providing i liked it
0: and i feel like that needs to be presented a lot more that's one of the reasons i brought the tyler perry films because in tyler perry movies it's often the man is successful and the, the the woman could be successful as well lawyer doctor what have you right but her successful partner is always arrogant, potentially violent, and the films always end up being you know, successful woman. You need to realize that average Joe garbage man with three daughters is he's just as good.
1: Right. And they tend to do it the opposite direction, too. Like in both of the Why Did I Get Married movies, they have these very contentious relationships. I like those movies because they also balance many tropes of different relationships but they often have a very successful woman and her somewhat equally successful sometimes slightly less successful husband ends up cheating on her with a woman who rarely has any professional success in that context in their general the context of their world and is often much younger so every now and then those seem to i mean god knows it happens more in real life than we know Probably. So they're mirroring what actually happens where men leave for a younger person or someone who doesn't challenge them in the same ways their current professional spouse does. That's the only piece in those movies, in those specific two Tyler Perry movies, that while I love the movies, I always find that trope played out. Like, we already get that it exists in real life. Yeah. Let's find another way of seeing that. I mean, my parents <laughs> are that example, so it's not uncommon. But maybe that's why it bothers me.
0: Yeah, and those are definitely, I would say, two of his better films. What I also find interesting, to get back to your point that you made earlier about, is the representation a benefit or a hindrance to this film? And you say it's a bit of both. And what I liked about this film is, for me, it was very effortless. It wasn't so much that he's Korean, she's from a Chinese background. It's just like, that's that's normal. It's right. not made a big deal. And as you said, there's a lot of discussion about food. And one of my favorite scenes is when they go back to one of the restaurants that they used to hang out as kids. And Sasha's like, oh, this place is terrible. And he's like, no, this place is really good. You can speak Cantonese or whatever. You can get right. really good service. And he's like, yeah, but no one's going to learn Cantonese just for food. He starts... <laughs> And he gets the better service. And they look down on her for, for even daring to touch his food that they've made specially for him. And there's those little cultural beats to it that work. And again, they're in San Francisco. So they're presenting a San Francisco that is diverse. And
1: extremely honest. There's a very large Asian population in San Francisco.
0: They just kind of all exist. You know, she might call out the Asian men and women who have the disability stickers on their car.
1: Right, they called out a ton of stereotypes.
0: So they can get better parking. Well, I guess one of the things I also really like about this film is as much as it's a film about two people who just happen to be Asian, you know, falling in love, it also calls out a lot of the liberal hypocrisy with being a, a hipster in San Francisco. And oh, yeah. I, I think of a character like Jenny, who yes. is Marcus's current girlfriend of of six months and they are spiritually married and sexually right. married, but clearly not officially married in Marcus's eyes and she, Jenny is very much a we must save the planet help the poor people racism is bad I don't support any of that oh but I'm eating on polydine plates which I stole right she has dreads in her hair I love
1: the joke of how do you even make how does an Asian person even make dreads
0: there's just a certain mentality to, to that lifestyle. And, you know, we haven't even talked about one of the key cameos, but there's this whole other world of the celebrity side of it, right? Completely the opposite to, to Jenny and the the hipsters, the celebrity side is we, we eat, at expensive restaurants where we essentially are just tasting bubbles Right. I love how they make fun of this world that is full of themselves in many ways.
1: You're right, without actually putting down Sasha's goal of being that kind of celebrity chef, they then take everybody to a restaurant like that um, with Sasha's new boyfriend and Jenny and Marcus, and then sort of poke fun at what that sort of logical conclusion or the epitome of that insanity kind of is where you're having earphones still listen to the deer that was killed something like that (laughs) which and then um Keanu starts to cry and it's like oh my god there yes there is a point at which this stops being food and we see Marcus mocking it but you can see that he's going too far like there is a value of a sort in this kind of food and yet the audience is supposed to be sort of on Marcus's side like no bubbles are not dinner That's not how it works. Like, you want substantial food as part of dinner, and yet then it's very, very expensive, but you haven't actually had anything on your plate. So it's sort of mocking where Sasha as a professional would go if she continued in this path of uber fancy chef, but without actually mocking her, which I really liked. Like, it's not that they're mocking that she is at that point or that she has sold out or that she has compromised – like those early cooking lessons from Marcus's mother, it's the idea that that exists and that could be a direction she's going in without saying those kinds of things explicitly. So again, these are the things I, you sort of notice the more times you see it, which makes a good rom com.
0: Further to your point, when they're in that uber sphere, that's the best way I can say. You know, the the, yeah. the world of the the wealthy. Jenny completely forget her values that are polar right. Opposite to it she she is quick to be in awe of being in the aura that is Keanu Reeves and I will give Keanu just nothing but love for one of the greatest cameos (laughs) and just sending up himself in a way that is was just wonderful to watch and it's Again, I've seen this three times and it's still his scenes still make me laugh. And even with him, he's trying to be the every person. And, you know, I'm not just an actor. I'm on a higher plane. But then he's also very condescending to Marcus. He right. He challenges Marcus's manhood subtly by pointing out how Marcus can't afford six thousand dollar meal. How, you know, I left school to work and that work was becoming an actor and being very famous, you know, like it's always, (laughs) I'm just one of you people, but he makes it clear at every other point to say, no, I'm not like you, I'm above you.
1: He's such a good version of just digging it in at Marcus, like by being a very good guy and this open to new ideas and open to things guy. And then his six $6,000 meal, he's like, uh, it's less than one of my residual checks from Speed, really pointing out that it's no big deal in his world. And I like that at that same meal, Sasha digs into that deer without giving a crap about the sounds that deer was making. <laughs> yeah. She wants to eat it. <laughs> Whereas Keanu's like tears up while eating it because he's listening to the deer that made his dinner. And I like that they're subtly distancing Sasha from Keanu and pairing her back with Marcus. In she doesn't really take in all of the flamboyance of it, but Jenny really does. She's wowed by it all.
0: She has a great line at the end of the night where Keanu and Marcus have had their altercation and Marcus is going home. And Jenny says that she's staying because she wants to talk about some of the environmental ideas that she has. And he's like, well, what's Keanu going to do about that? And she brings up Leonardo DiCaprio and how Leonardo DiCaprio has fought climate change. And he says, well, give me an example. And she doesn't have one. But he's like, he's working on it. The fact that Leo says he's working on it means that things are getting done. Right. So It's just, again, reemphasizing the those who are hipsters and are against the grain are really nothing more than celebrity worshipers. Yeah. One thing I wanted to ask you about is with the the way romantic comedies are going, do you feel like we're having a resurgence now? I know we're, we're starting to see more diversity because I think with this coming out, you also had Crazy Rich Asians, you had To All the Boys I've Loved Before, which I still haven't seen.
1: Oh, it's wonderful. Yeah.
0: Do you feel we've hit a point where romantic comedies are staggering? Has streaming services changed them because of the success of Hallmark in terms of making it super cheap and all the Netflix Hallmark wannabes and Lifetime wannabes, what have you. I don't know if we're getting as many great ones in theaters anymore.
1: I think in a lot of ways we're not. I mean, in my own thinking back to it, I feel like The Proposal was the last one, the last big, well-received romantic comedy. And it was, I think it was also right in the year of Sandra Bullock's sort of real big year with, um, the Blind Side, and she, she had one other movie that year that was really bad, but she was around a lot of places that year and had done well. No, I, I think streaming services have done a huge service to the rom-com, mostly Netflix, but Hulu has done a good job. Trying to push the TV series version of it and bring them back because basically everything that's original content on Netflix is designed for a niche audience. There's not a lot that they bother trying to get huge, broad appeal like a theater would try to do. And so they're able to do a lot more of these. One of the ones that I wanted to bring up is one that just came out a couple of weeks ago is a movie called The Half of It, and one of the things, it just came out on Netflix, it's directed by Alice Wu, also written by Alice Wu, it's supposed to be something like her story, and it follows a Chinese-American, well actually she was born in China, came to the United States, and she lives in the Midwest, and it's basically a send-up of Cyrano de Bergerac, the play, the French play. Where she ends up writing letters for a dumb jock to try to get him to woo the best looking girl in school, who Ellie, our scribe, is in love with. So it bends, it takes Cyrano into a high school environment, and then it also bends the love interest into an LGBT direction. And it does a really good job of it. It's a terrific movie. It's very. Heartfelt. It's got some interesting racial undertones in that she is very aware she is different and that because she's Chinese, we get to see all of the different pieces of it. But one of the things I was thinking of when I saw this is that a lot of the romantic comedies across the board tend to take on some sort of pre existing material. And then shape it in that, like, especially the high school ones now that I'm thinking about it. Like, 10 Things I Hate About You is a high school romantic comedy that's taming the shrew. And Clueless is Emma. And a lot of them do one of the best jobs is taking on these ideas of previous love stories or grown-up love stories and bring it into a high school context and add some comedy to it.
0: Yeah, it's funny because I I enjoyed the half of it. And it's one that when you brought it up, at first I was thinking, I didn't associate it as a romantic comedy, even though there's comedic elements to it. I think it's just because it had some serious dramatic beats to it. Right. And it doesn't follow the set formula. But in many ways, I think that's why I really liked it, that it didn't follow. But it's just because it didn't follow a lot of the traditional formulas, my brain just did not compartmentalize that. Like, yeah, that is a, it is a rom-com (laughs) and that's a a perfect example. One of the things that bothers me about the romantic comedy genre, and I've had many discussions with people that say, well, you need to have it or else it's not a, a true romantic comedy is the, the fight scene. Oh yeah. You pointed out the example of Marcus saying, you know, I want to be the person that holds your purse. Right a really great line. It literally pushes her parents to the sideline because that whole story arc with her parents kind of bothered me because I never thought it was fully formed. I agree. I don't
1: think it's fully formed. I think it leaves her parents as stereotypes at the beginning of not wanting to pay the tip so he's willing to find a guy in any city to pick her a person in any city to pick her up from the airport because paying a tip is not what he wants to have to do And she, whereas she makes tons of money.
0: And I feel like they could have had different ways to bring that out without having the, they break up. They don't talk for months. He then gets his life together. Like even in movies or whatever, there's always that scene where they have to have the big breakup and not every relationship is like that. Right. Like I feel you can have love stories that have their ups and downs. You could still have the declaration of love. Like, you know what? I'm here for you. I've made a few blunders, but it's always like, okay, here comes the big fights and here's where they're apart. Trying to discuss that with a couple of friends, people are saying, "Well, it's essential to a romantic comedy. You must have." Them. i was like, "Well, you, you know, when it comes to anything in film, it's not necessarily a must. You know, you don't. You can have a superhero film without having an origin story. It's one of those things that bothers me. So if I if I have a film where." I get to that moment and I'm still really engaged with the film. And like you said, still want to rewatch it again. That's how I know I've really enjoyed it. And this one, I was, you know, I got to that moment like, ah, here we go. And I found myself still really engaged by these characters. So then when he gave his big speech in front of everyone, I was like, yep, I'm satisfied.
1: I think there's a good support for your argument in that I think one of the reasons that the proposal works so well is... It's almost instant. The only thing keeping them apart is the fact that she left on a plane before he could get on a plane. So inherently, they are some number of hours apart from resolving it, but they don't let it go on and have to learn this process, which feels more authentic to their storyline, that this they got together very quickly, like the whole thing happens basically over a weekend. And then... The continuation of it is just a few hours later and they make a joke about it when he's walking into the office and sort of panting he's like i ran here and she's like from alaska and the uh, just the idea that he's just this far behind her and they're now resolving it it's monday morning they're resolving this issue and so you're still invested like this is the next time they've seen each other they didn't have to go out and learn their lessons they clearly we had just watched a two-hour movie watching them learn those lessons together so it made it more authentic so i think you're right i don't think you have to have this big fight breakup and then go learn do the montage of learning their lessons separately although a lot of romantic comedies do rely on that
0: i don't even think we've, we've mentioned yet but her uh, assistant veronica who is just a delight veronica has some of the best lines in this film
1: oh my gosh she's amazing and she's such an interesting character in Michelle Buteau is just terrific playing her but she's pregnant for almost the whole movie which is unusual that her pregnancy is not the object or the end-all be-all of her character it's just part of her character and the fact that her partner is a woman is only brought up as humor about one of their former classmates hitting on her and saying that her um, partner is a woman she he finds out her partner is now a woman like It's just all part of, generally part of who they are. It's not um, fodder for more humor. It's just a little piece here and there. Like when she goes out to the club, she really shouldn't be dancing too much because she's very pregnant. And it's just another part of her character and not a defining piece of her character
0: you yeah, know she's not just the sidekick or the the overweight sidekick that you always see back in like the early 90s and whatnot but she's she's confident so when they make the joke about the thigh gap water and she says thank you for calling it a thigh gap <laughs> you know like she right. just takes a lot of pride and in- in that, oh, thank you. You know, even though I have a child, you, you still realize I got shape and stuff. Oh, you know, and she, she tells Marcus he's cute but dumb. <laughs> she's very much the, on the sidelines trying to push them back together.
1: And she's a professional woman in her own right. Like, she manages these businesses. She's clearly the one who works for Sasha, but is not her personal assistant in a lot of stereotypical ways. Sasha's the cook. or the chef as part of this and the innovation, but somebody has to go through and make sure the right chairs are ordered. And it's fairly unique to see sort of three women on screen in this kind of a professional context, let alone in a romantic comedy.
0: Partly because Sasha is the boss, there's never that moment where Veronica is forcing Sasha to choose between her job or following her heart. She's clearly trying to bring Marcus back into Sasha's life because she's like, you can do it both. You can have it all. And here's the guy you should have it with. But at the same time, she's not, they're not disrupting the business for Marcus. It's such a delightful film. And again, you can watch it with all these different themes that we're talking about, or you can just watch it for some last for an hour and a half.
1: Yeah. It's terrific.
0: Uh, Just where can the listeners find you?
1: They can find me on Twitter at in, IN underscore entertain because I once wrote a blog called insight into entertainment and that's where my Twitter handle came from and I don't want to change it at this point and I just I tweet about nerd culture and movies and sometimes academics if the mood strikes me I tend to write at the matinee and cinema access when Also, The Mood Strikes. Otherwise, find me on Twitter. Oh, and when my podcast comes back, you can also find back episodes of the Real Insight Podcast, R-E-E-L, Insight Podcast. But Rachel and I have been on a hiatus since the pandemic
0: started. Well, that's all right. There's still plenty of great episodes that listeners can find it they can find it over on Potomatic uh, podomatic and yep. uh, i guess on iTunes as well yep for sure and listeners you can contact me on twitter at smallmind or you can reach the show on twitter at changingreelsac thank you very much for listening remember you can change the conversation on diversity and representation in cinema one reel at a time